Hi, everyone. This Quorum episode this month will count for CME credit with ACP. Yay. We will link the exact URL in the show notes, so click on the link, answer three questions, and get CME credit. And with that, cue the intro. I used to work at Calnor Community Health Center, which is an LGBT health center uh, in Chelsea in New York. And I had my first hormone education visit. And the person came to me and said, I said, what are uh, what are your goals of hormones? What are the changes you think are going to happen? And it's a trans guy going on testosterone. And he said, I'm going to start testosterone um, about one to two weeks later. I'm going to feel really great about my body. My family's going to accept me. I'm going to like be able to go out dating again, go out to the bars. I'm going to feel so comfortable. I'm going to get a beard. It just like kept going. I'm going to have a deep voice. And so it was a great moment for me to realize like you need to set expectations for patients. That's Nathan Levitt, a nurse practitioner and an advocate for the transgender community, as well as a transgender man himself. And just to clarify, for those of you that are new to the subject, uh, it was a teaching point for me too. His patient had an unrealistic timeline in mind, and we will get into why that was today. Welcome back to the Core I Am Five Pearls podcast. This is Dr. Marty Freed, a primary care doc at The Ohio State Wexner Medical Center. And this is Dr. Shreya Trivedi, a population health fellow at NYU. Today, we are finishing up a two-part series on comprehensive transgender care. We hope you listened to the previous transgender health episode, which really set the stage on gender-affirming care. Now we're going to hit the road on hormones. A few caveats before we start, though. We want to be clear that we're targeting adult medicine clinicians. So some of this can be applied to adolescent medicine, but as a heads up, we don't specifically address pediatrics. Our hope with this episode is to really give a good foundation and really dispel any hesitation there may be around starting hormone therapy. So let's jump into the pearls we'll be covering today. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl 1, contraindications. Are there absolute contraindications before starting hormone therapy? Pearl 2, expectations. What are the expectations you should be setting up front with your patients when starting hormone therapy to avoid that misconception that Nathan was talking about in his intro quote? Pearl 3, hormone risks. What are the major risks associated with hormone therapy in transgender patients, and how do we mitigate them? Pearl 4. Medications and maintenance care. What options are available for feminizing hormones and masculinizing hormones? And what do we monitor when they're on hormone therapy? And Pearl 5. Preventative screening. How should you approach preventive care, such as cancer screening, for transgender patients? So before we start, we just wanted to give a quick heads up that in this pearl, we're going to outline a few rare contraindications for gender-affirming hormone therapy. While we cover these, and later on we're going to talk about some risks of hormone therapy, we absolutely do not want to give the impression that any of this represents reasons to withhold what we consider life-saving gender-affirming hormone therapy for our trans and non-binary patients. So let's dive in. Say your patient comes into your office wanting help with their transition and asks you to prescribe hormones. How do you even begin this conversation? Yeah, this can certainly feel overwhelming. After speaking with all of our experts and reviewers, what I've come away with is to treat hormone therapy like any other procedure in medicine, and that's starting with a good, detailed, informed consent. Right. So before we get to the informed part, we also have to remember that patients come in with a bunch of different experiences, thoughts, and questions about hormone therapy. Often trans and non-binary people who are walking in have done a lot of research and know a lot about this. 
but some people don't, and there's some misinformation out in the community. That's Dr. Green, who you might remember from our first transgender care episode on gender-affirming therapy. Dr. Green is an NYU internist and runs the Pride Center at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. All right. So while you're getting your patients to open up and talk about what they're bringing to the table when it comes to hormone therapy, step one is for you to keep in mind what are the absolute contraindications before starting hormone therapy that you want to address sooner rather than later. I think there are very few things that stop me from starting hormones. I think the things that I would think about personally, a sex-specific cancer, so like a hormone-sensitive breast cancer, is a really good reason to not start hormones in this moment. And active pregnancy is a really good reason to not start testosterone because it's a known teratogen. Other mm-hmm. than that, there aren't absolute contraindications to starting hormones. Okay, so do not PASCO if they have those two contraindications, hormone-sensitive cancer, which is extremely rare, and pregnancy. One last thing uh, before getting into further discussions with your patient is thinking about fertility. Now, hormones can affect one's ability to conceive, And sometimes that infertility actually can be permanent, particularly in trans women. And for this reason, the UCSF guidelines specifically recommend discussing future fertility with all patients and actually offering sperm or oocyte banking if that's desired. There's only really these two main contraindications for starting hormone therapy at that moment. Clot is not one of them. So the voice you heard just now is Dr. Carl Streed. You also heard him in part one of this transgender series. He's the research lead in transgender medicine and surgery at Boston University. Wait, but Shrey, did he just say that a history of clots, like blood clots, like DVTs and PEs, are not a contraindication for hormone therapy? Did he just say that? He did just say that. We'll get a little bit more into that in Pearl 3. But as a heads up, get this, even cigarette smoking, which is a risk factor for DVT in this population, is also not an absolute contraindication. Neither is coexisting mental health issues like severe depression or prior suicidality in starting hormone therapy. Yeah, there's definitely a misconception that you can't start hormone therapy in patients who have had prior mental health issues. That is super false. Though, listen, it's sometimes worth getting behavioral health involved just because of the high prevalence of mental health issues in this population. The point here is that hormone therapy can actually be therapeutic in transgender patients with mental health issues. In fact, they are, for me, often motivated for like, great, let's get this going because anxiety and depression and suicidality have been found time and time again to go down with starting gender-affirming care of any kind. All right, so major take-home points from this pearl is that the only widely agreed upon absolute contraindications against hormone therapy is current pregnancy and current hormone-sensitive cancer. Other than that, there's not much stopping you if your patient wants hormone therapy. One other caveat, don't forget to talk to your patients about future fertility and sperm or oocyte banking if genetic offspring are important. Now that the patient doesn't have any absolute contraindications, we should prep our patients with the time course of expected changes. At the start of this episode, you heard Nathan discuss one patient's impression about the timing of changes once masculinizing hormones start. Here's the rest of that clip. So I just stopped him and said, "This, thank you for sharing what you think is going to happen. Here are the, And then I go over what are the expected changes. But in that, I say it's different for every person. Like for myself, uh, I've been on, horm- on testosterone for 15 years and I get mammed on the phone all the time. 
constantly. So I didn't get the deep booming voice that some people do. And then I got hair I didn't want, like back Neither hair. Did I. I didn't ask for that. <laughs> yeah. So I just feel like you don't, you can't always choose where things happen. So I try to say to patients, these are the expected changes. The course of when it can happen can be short term to long term. It sounds like unfortunately body changes from hormones isn't quite a menu our patients can pick from, but we can guide them with what to expect after they do start hormones. The analogy that we talk about frequently is think about puberty. How long did puberty take to go through the first time? Mm -hmm. Certainly there's a genetic component to what kinds of changes people will see. If the body shape in your family of people of the affirmed gender is one thing, but you're hoping to look like somebody else, that may or may not be possible with hormones. Okay, so on average for a trans man, the first three to six months is characterized by oiliness of skin, maybe a little bit of acne, cessation of menses, and probably some pelvic pain. Between 6 to 12 months, the voices will typically deepen, you'll see some muscle mass increase, and people will notice changes in hair growth. That's the back hair that Nathan was referring to. Some of these changes are reversible if testosterone is stopped, but others are not. So in terms of thinking about some of the um, the irreversible changes of hormones, so mm-hmm. for transmasculine people, for people who are using testosterone, male pattern baldness does uh, tend to be permanent. Um, clitoromegaly, um, so an enlargement of the clitoris, is permanent, mm-hmm. and also deepening of the voice. As the voice deepens, it, it, even with the stopping of testosterone, it does not tend mm-hmm. to go back up again. Ah, that is good to know. I can imagine my patients would definitely want a heads up on male pattern hair growth that's going to be permanent, especially if baldness is a possibility. All right, Marty, what about trans feminine patients? What's the time scale like of changes that trans feminine patients can expect? Yeah, so trans women will notice skin being a little bit smoother early on, followed by testicular atrophy and decreased muscle mass kind of towards the end of that first year between 6 to 12 months. The development of breast tissue is typically irreversible. Oh, don't forget to warn patients about some expected irritability. I do remind people that you're going to have some mood changes as well. Remember how fun puberty was the first time? This is the second round. Oh, man, you have to respect the strength of these patients. Amen, sister. All right. So to summarize, the timing of these changes follows a general pattern and usually takes months to years. But the changes can't be predicted, and any specific change, unfortunately, cannot be guaranteed. Okay, so we just talked about the informed part of that informed consent, giving our patients a heads up about what to expect with hormone therapy. But understanding the risks is also pretty key. Yeah, for sure. But real quick, Shrey, before we dive into all the potential bad stuff, let's keep in mind the benefits of hormone therapy. I think Nathan said this particularly well. Hormones can be incredibly life-saving. I mean, it's just from my own life to other people I've worked with, when people have access to hormones, they literally want to live their lives, right? They feel better about who they are. They see themselves on the outside match who they feel on the inside. And I've seen people who were previously, you know, suicidal ideations who have said now that they have access to hormones and affirming care, they want to live their lives, right? And they want to take care of themselves and their bodies. Wow. Quite powerful. So general idea around risks. Most people think general principles, estrogen, we worry about clots and cardiovascular disease. And then in terms of testosterone, people are usually worried about worsening cardiovascular risk factors. But let's see if it holds true in terms of evidence. Maybe we can even myth bust some of these dogmas. Yeah, so let's start with the elephant in the room. What did our experts have to say about estrogen and risk of venous thromboembolism? 
Venus thromboembolism is a little bit of a mouthful. Shrey, you cool if we say VTE from now on? <laughs> okay, I will allow it. I hope you don't walk around in real life and say that too. VTE, VTE, VTE. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that I like to remind people is that one of the older estrogens that we don't use anymore uh, in uh, for gender affirmation, ethanol estradiol, was one of the big culprits, and it's not something that we use. So there's lots of outdated studies, but it's really this stuff from 2010 that's looking at the more current estrogen formulations. So with the current data that we do have, what are we telling our trans feminine patients about the risk of clot on estrogen? There is a slight increase in potential venal thromboembolism um, uh, based on estrogens. However, this risk is much lower than I think a lot of people think it is, uh, to be perfectly honest. Um, there is a change in the risk. We're not talking about everybody's going to get a clot. We're not even talking about like one in 10 people are going to get a clot. We're talking about much lower numbers here. And more specifically, there was a 2018 annals paper that showed about a 1% incident rate of clots in cis men over eight years. And that increased to about a 5% incident rate of clots in trans women on estrogen. Again, over eight years. So still quite low. Right. But the conversation changes a bit if the patient who wants to start estrogen smokes cigarettes. The risk of clot is certainly higher in smokers. Which is a great way to motivate patients to stop smoking. What about if the patient, though, had a history of clots in the past? The main thing here is to remember is that having had a clot in the past is not a reason not to start hormone therapy. There are different ways of walking through this. And so one of the things that can be really helpful is really selecting what kind of estrogen we're using and really selecting the, uh, the form that the estrogen takes, whether it's uh, enteral or parenteral, um, mm-hmm. I think is, is incredibly helpful. Great. So let's say we're dealing with a patient who is actually at an increased risk for VTE, like those with a family history of clot or maybe an ongoing smoker. So then we really should reach for the transdermal formulation like estrogen patches, for example. I am a fan of having options to mitigate the risk of clots. Yay, transdermal patches. All right, so we'll link in our transcript the UCSF guidelines that has a really great algorithm walking you through step-by-step if you're worried at all about a clot in a trans-feminine individual. Okay, so we covered risk of clot from estrogen therapy. Let's move from risk of VTE to overall cardiovascular risk in patients who are using feminizing hormones. So there seems to be, um, as far as we can tell in terms of some of the larger population studies, a potential increase in the risk of uh, MI and and or stroke. Um, I say and or and possibly because the data keeps on changing depending on which study you're looking at um, as to whether there is an increased risk or not. Um, I generally explain to my patients that there is the likelihood that there is uh, increased risk for MI and stroke based on estrogens over the long term. uh, And we're talking about decades of use at this point. But again, talking about routine primary care, we're going to be monitoring all the other classic risk factors um, and really kind of addressing that as we provide their gender affirming care over the course of their life. Can I tell you how much I love how he frames this? So Dr. Street basically acknowledges the uncertainty in the data, but reaffirms that, listen, we're in this for the long haul. He basically says, I can't promise this won't happen to you, but I'll promise I'll be here for you if it does, and I will definitely make sure to do our best to prevent it from happening in the first place. Okay, so we're not ready to say myth busted on cardiovascular disease risk from estrogen, but the data keeps changing, as Dr. Street pointed out. Love it. All right, so let's move on to the risks in testosterone therapy. All transmasculine individuals who use testosterone, we're not seeing any kind of change in the clot burden in this population in, in the current studies that we have available. Um, so, I, I mean 
case closed, not really worried about testosterone causing clots uh, at this point. I haven't, and honestly, I have not seen a trans masculine individual get a clot unless they have a predisposing clotting disorder already. Um, the testosterone is not the cause here, friends. Myth busted. Woohoo! <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So we busted testosterone and clots. What about the effect of testosterone on cardiovascular health? What we do know within transgender men and transmasculine individuals receiving testosterone, testosterone does worsen some of the classic risk factors for cardiovascular events. So it will increase systolic and diastolic blood pressures. The research really shows it's probably no more than like one to two millimeters of mercury uh, change. That being said, it's statistically significant um, and it is moving towards the direction we really don't want it to move towards. Um, it will lead to a less protective lipid profile, so a slight uh, increase in LDL, lowering of HDL, worsening of cholesterol and triglycerides, actually. Um, and it can lead to a slight decrease in insulin sensitivity or essentially increasing insulin resistance among transmasculine individuals. So you hear that and you sort of pause, right? Like, am I just going to be giving all my transmasculine patients the metabolic syndrome with this therapy? And then Dr. Street drops this bomb. Is this leading to more heart attacks and stroke in trans masculine individuals? And current data really doesn't support that this is, um, to be perfectly honest. Right. So testosterone may make numbers look a little worse. And we're talking about not clinically significant numbers here, more like one to two millimeters of mercury on that blood pressure machine. The important thing, though, is that we're not seeing these small bumps in numbers actually translate into worse outcomes like heart attack or stroke for our trans masculine patients. And if we think about this in a harm reduction model, as good primary care clinicians, we can engage them in care eat that much more and intensify their blood pressure regimen if that's what's needed. Perfect. All right, I'm about to let you summarize this section, but before I do, I want to direct our listeners' attention to this amazing table in the WPATH guidelines. WPATH is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. There are other less publicized risks that we should at least mention. Feminizing hormone likely increases the risk of gallstones, weight gain, and hypertriglyceridemia. Makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Masculinizing hormones likely increases the risk of polycythemia, weight gain, male pattern baldness, and sleep apnea. There's a full list that's actually broken down in order of descending likelihood, which will definitely be included in our show notes. But I want to emphasize Marty threw those in just to be thorough, and those risks he just mentioned are quite uncommon. All right, so to summarize what I'm taking away from this pearl, when discussing risks of hormone therapy, say for our trans feminine patients, we're telling them about the slight potential risk of clots over the years, but we can always modify that risk with transdermal estrogen options. And then the second risk, heart attack and strokes, the data isn't as clear cut here, but we do see a small increased risk over years with estrogen. For patients who want to start on testosterone, there is not an increased risk of clot, yay, mm -hmm. one myth busted, but we might see a slight bump in their lipids, their finger sticks, or their blood pressure without any solid evidence that it actually manifests into more heart attacks or strokes for our transmasculine patients. All right, Trey. So at this point, we've really reviewed the first visit with a patient who comes to us asking about gender-affirming hormone therapy, including the informed consent for treatment. Now, let's focus in on the medications themselves. So masculinizing medications, pretty straightforward, right? We're talking about testosterone here. Yeah, absolutely. And there are two groups of delivery methods here. There's either intramuscular or subcutaneous on one hand, 
And then there's topical formulations on the other hand. Dr. Street definitely has some thoughts about uh, which one he prefers. Bigger fan of uh, intramuscular or sub-Q here versus doing creams and ointments. Um, The creams and ointments, it's a little bit harder to ensure that they're going to get an adequate dose um, every time they do it. And again, it's going to come down to preference. Some people feel like the creams and ointments are always oily. It's a mess. They have a hard time cleaning up afterwards. Um, But the flip side is some people are terrified of needles. Naturally, we're not going to do IM injections if they don't uh, feel they can do it safely and comfortably. Well, that certainly seems reasonable. Nice to have options. Those testosterone injections, they're either weekly or every other week, right? Yeah, exactly. The weekly dosing option provides a more level dosing and does avoid fatigue and irritability that can occur at the end of the injection cycle. Obviously, it's twice as many injections as biweekly, and so you can kind of leave it up to the patients in terms of what their options are here. Oh, I'd I'd be a much bigger fan of the weekly. (laughs) I don't like my patients being fatigued and irritable. That's right. But yeah, so when they're on these testosterone injections or creams, what should we be monitoring for and watch out for? Yeah, so here we're getting baseline CBCs to monitor hemoglobin hematocrit, and we're doing that pretty much every three to six months during the first year, and then yearly after that, since testosterone can cause an erythrocytosis. The recommendation is also to check baseline lipids and LFTs, as well as baseline free testosterone and estradiol for comparison purposes later on. I want to see that estrogen has come down and that testosterone has come up. And I'm aiming for testosterone, depending on which lab you're using, you're aiming for a testosterone that matches cisgender, uh, cisgender men for the most part. I don't want somebody hovering in a testosterone that's only like around 100, because that's really not providing any kind of added benefit for them. And each lab is different, but in general, we're shooting for a serum testosterone of 300 to 1,000 during the middle of that injection cycle. Great. Let's move on to our trans-feminine patients. What strategy do we have here in terms of our medication options? Yeah, so trans-feminine patients will all get some form of estrogen as well as an androgen blocker. That's typically in the form of spironolactone or finasteride. Here, looking at estrogen uh, for the uh, main part here in terms of labs, we think about same as before, hormone levels. I want to know what estrogen and testosterone we're looking at uh, at baseline. Again, aiming for testosterone that is very low um, to almost undetectable. And then I make sure that we order a BMP and or CMP because if somebody's being started on an antiandrogen like spironolactone, I really need to know their renal function here. Um, And I need to know their electrolytes um, at baseline. I have, by doing this screening, I've actually identified people with kidney disease who would not be a good candidate for spironolactone, so then we actually try a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor like finasteride, which can be used as an antiandrogen. Great. So feminizing hormones, we're going to be checking hormone levels in a basic metabolic panel, especially with the spironolactone. But I'm curious, when starting spironolactone, I just have found that a lot of these patients are on the younger side, they have lower blood pressures. I'm curious how our experts go about blood pressure in these patients. Most of my patients, even with low normal blood pressures, their blood pressure really doesn't take a big dive um, when they're on the spironolactone. The main thing they always bring up, as is not surprising with a diuretic, is how often they have to go pee. Uh, So I do, uh, when I'm doing twice a day dosing, I remind them to really aim for morning and early afternoon for their spironolactone rather than later in the day. And also I would point out that we are talking about the medical side of gender affirming care here. People, once they, if they go down the route, if they so choose to have a um, orchiectomy, no longer need the t- uh, no longer uh, need uh, antiandrogens at that point. Right, so I had to wrap my brain around that, but now it makes sense. Once those testicles are out, you don't have that source of testosterone in the body, and you don't need that androgen blocker anymore, like spironolactone or finasteride. What about estrogen? What are the formulations of estrogen that we're thinking about? Yeah, so here we have a lot more options. We have tablets, we have patches, 
and we have injections. It sounded like Dr. Street and Green had almost all of their patients on oral estrogen just because it's so much easier. But remember that patients with an elevated risk of clot, that's like smoking or a family history, really should probably be on the patch. Exactly. Uh, What about lab monitoring with patients that are on estrogen? For my trans feminine individuals, again, I really need to see that testosterone come down since testosterone has such a strong virilizing effect that we really, I really do want to see that that is coming down. Even if they have an estrogen level that's appropriate, which um, is a much wider range, um, the testosterone really needs to be pretty low. Uh, And that's the main reason I want to know where they're coming from. Right. So again, arguing for that baseline testosterone in trans feminine patients. All right, Shrey, you want to summarize this section? I'd love to. So many good teaching points here. So for masculinizing hormone regimens, it's really going to center around testosterone, which is either given sub-Q, intramuscularly, or topically, though those creams can get a bit messy, so give your patients a heads (laughs) up on that. And we're monitoring for testosterone levels, really aiming for that normal cisgender range based on whatever your lab says, and looking out for inner CBCs for erythrocytosis, lipids, as well as an A1C really trying to minimize that cardiovascular risk that we talked about in Pearl 2 with testosterone. And then on the other end, with the feminizing regimens, it includes estrogen, which is either going to be a pill, topical, or injection form, and then the androgen blocker, which is either spironolactone or finasteride. Here, we're monitoring free testosterone, mainly to see if it drops and keeping an eye on the renal function and electrolytes, especially if they're on spironolactone. And I just want to make another plug for those amazing UCSF guidelines. They lay out a very clear follow-up chart, which basically tells you what labs to check and when exactly to check them. All right, so let's switch gears and put ourselves in the shoes a few months later in the care of this transgender patient. And hopefully we've built a level of trust, address any pertinent medical or other psychosocial issues with the patient, and we're moving on from dealing with the acute issues to thinking about kind of this individual and and their whole life, you know, the beauty of primary care, as Marty would say. And so uh, in order to do that, what do we need to know about preventing illness in the future? I actually really enjoy talking to my trans and non-binary patients about preventative screening because I think it's uh, really at the core of what we do as primary care providers. So often in primary care, we think about gender-based care, like women need mammograms and men need perhaps a conversation about prostate cancer screening or something. But rather than thinking about it in terms of gender, thinking about it as anatomy-based care. So what organs do you have? And if so, do they have to be screened for cancer? Yeah, I just love this paradigm shift from gender-based screenings to organ-based screenings. Remember, we spent some time in the first podcast discussing the organ inventory, which, which is basically gives us a chance to learn about how our patients describe their own body parts, but it also gives us a chance to learn about gender-affirming surgeries they've had in the past. So what organs do you have? And if so, do they have to be screened for cancer, right? If you have a cervix, regardless of what you call it, if it's at risk for cancer, we should screen it. So the phrase I use with my patients is, if you have it, check it. And most of my patients are okay with that, as long as we come up with affirming ways to do that. Exactly. If you have it, check it. All right. So let's start with transgender men and chest screening. And remember, chest screening is the preferred term for breast cancer screening. And again, just hammering home the importance of that detailed surgical history, because it's going to be really important for you to know what kind of chest surgery your patient had, whether it was a full bilateral mastectomy or a breast reduction. Oh, that's a good point. I'm, I'm guessing things get kind of complicated if there is breast tissue left. So the bottom line here is if they've, they've undergone breast reduction 
and there may be some breast tissue left, unfortunately, there just isn't an optimal modality for cancer screening. So in these cases, we just have to acknowledge the uncertainty and and do some shared decision-making. Mammography probably isn't technically feasible. So say if this person has had a family history of breast cancer, then you might be reaching more for an MRI or ultrasound. But unfortunately, we just don't have good guidelines to steer us in any particular direction. Ah, the old evidence-free zone. I'm becoming more comfortable in that space. High five, high five. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about cancer screening in transgender men who have a cervix. Right. So in general, screening intervals for cervical cancer screening follows the same recommendations as cisgender women. But remember from episode one, this can actually be dysphoric for some of our patients. But there's a lot of things that we can do to make it easier for our patients in case they do feel uncomfortable. For example, talking about the exam months in advance, using a pediatric speculum, or even giving some pre-medication as Dr. Green describes. If you're planning on doing a cervical exam, it can be helpful for people to use vaginal estrogen creams for a week or two prior to uh, the um, the procedure, only because it can make things more comfortable. You might get a better sample. Um, mm-hmm. All of those things are possible. And so I'll have this conversation well in advance with my trans men, um, mostly because uh, the idea of using an estrogen for them is often very uncomfortable, uh, but mm-hmm. the exam itself will also be uncomfortable. So some of my trans, man, trans men will use the estrogen creams and some won't. I absolutely respect both decisions. Oh, man, I never thought about estrogen being a triggering topic for trans men, but it totally makes sense. All right, let's move on to cancer screening in transgender women. So a few important organs for screening transgender women. It's going to be namely the breast and the prostate. Breast cancer screening in transgender women? This is a thing? It is a thing. I didn't know about this either before uh, tackling this episode and talking to our experts. So in Mm -hmm. general, the guideline, again, follows the same of cisgender women. So basically, we should be screening transgender women over the age of 50 who've been on feminizing hormones for at least five years. They should get screened every two years for breast cancer, just as a cisgender woman would. All right, perfect. Okay, perfect. So tell me about prostate cancer screening in transgender women, uh, because honestly, I'm not even sure what I'm doing with prostate cancer screening in my cisgender men. Same. I'm so glad you brought that up, because again, here there isn't clear guidelines, but Dr. Green reminds us about the effects of long-term estrogen and antiandrogen therapy can actually have on the risk of prostate cancer in these women. If you imagine that someone who has been on testosterone blockade and estrogen for a very long period of time is at very low risk for prostate cancer, but just in case to remember that they have this body part and discuss screening, particularly in people who are high risk, is very important. All right, that also makes sense. So it's kind of like a dealer's choice situation, huh? Yep. Shared decision here as well prevails. Okay, so to summarize this section, in terms of cancer screening transgender patients, remember Dr. Green's famous words, if you got it, check it. Transmasculine patients should undergo cervical cancer screenings according to the timeline in the cisgender guidelines if they have a cervix. Also consider chest screening for transmasculine men who have either not had a mastectomy or who have underwent breast reduction instead of full mastectomy. Transfeminine patients also should get breast cancer screening, but only if they are older than 50 and have been on hormones for greater than five years. And like for cisgender men, prostate cancer screening for trans women should be individualized based on their own risks and preferences. 
And that is a wrap for today's episode. Thank you to Harit Shah for audio editing the many iterations this episode went through. Dr. Brandon Pollock from The Ohio State University for peer reviewing this episode. Gabby Mayer, a fourth year medical student at NYU for doing the show notes. Uh, Bu Collins for the infographic and Vicky Caspides for the extra hand on the website. And thank you. Um, if you like this episode, give it a rating on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. It certainly does help people find us. And we are always learning and welcome feedback. Um, as always, our opinions expressed in this episode are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. And with that, thank you and take care. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.